0: Book Five, Chapters One to Fourteen of Commentaries on the Gallic War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar. Translated by Thomas Rice Holmes. Book Five. Caesar's Second Invasion of Britain. THE DISASTER AT ADUATUCA, QUINTUS CICERO AT BAY, THE DOOM OF INDUSCHOMERUS. CHAPTER One: When Caesar, according to his yearly custom, was leaving his winter quarters for Italy, in the consulship of Lucius Domitius and Appius Claudius, he ordered the generals whom he had placed in command of the legions to have as many ships as possible built during the winter and the old ones repaired he explained the principle and indicated the lines on which they were to be built. To enable them to be loaded rapidly and hauled up on shore, he had them made a little shallower than those which are habitually used in the Mediterranean, especially as he found that, owing to the frequent ebb and flow of the tides, the waves there are comparatively small. On the other hand, to carry stores as well as the numerous horses, he built them a little wider than those which we use in other waters. All these vessels he ordered to be constructed both for rowing and sailing, which was greatly facilitated by their low freeboard, and the tackle required for fitting them out to be imported from Spain. After finishing the assizes in Cisalpina Gaul, he started for Illyricum, hearing that the Perusti were making devastating raids upon the adjacent part of the province. On his arrival, he levied troops from the tribes and ordered them to concentrate at a prescribed place. The perusti on hearing of this, sent envoys to tell him that the authorities were not responsible for anything that had occurred, and declared themselves ready to make full reparation. After listening to what the envoys had to say, Caesar ordered them to furnish hostages, who were to be brought to him by a fixed date, warning them that, in default of compliance, he would attack the tribe. The hostages were brought punctually, in obedience to his orders, and he appointed umpires to weigh the matters in dispute between the several tribes and settle the fines. 2. After disposing of these affairs and finishing the Assizes, Caesar returned to Cisalpine Gaul and thence started to join the army. On his arrival, he inspected all the camps, and found that, thanks to the extraordinary energy of the troops, and notwithstanding the extreme deficiency of resources, about six hundred ships of the class described above and twenty-eight galleys had been built, and would be ready for launching in a few days. Heartily commending the soldiers and the officers who had superintended the work, he gave the necessary instructions, and ordered all the ships to assemble at the Ischian harbour, from which he had ascertained that the passage to Britain was most convenient, the run from the continent being about thirty miles. Leaving an adequate number of troops to effect this movement, he started with four legions in light marching order and eight hundred horse for the country of the treveri as they would not attend his councils or submit to his authority and were said to be making overtures to the transrenanate germans three this tribe possesses by far the most powerful cavalry in the whole of gaul as well as numerous infantry and as we have remarked above its territory reaches the rhine two rivals Induchomerus and in Syngeterix were engaged in a struggle for supremacy. The latter, as soon as the approach of Caesar and his legions was known, presented himself before him, gave an assurance that he and all his followers would remain staunch and not break off their friendship with the Romans, and told him what was going on amongst the Treveri. Induchomerus, on the other hand, proceeded to levy horse and foot and to make preparations for war while he sent those who were not of an age to bear arms into the Ardennes, a forest of vast extent, which stretches from the Rhine through the heart of the Treveran territory to the frontier of the Remi, Some leading men, however, of the former tribe, influenced by friendship for Syngederex and alarmed by the arrival of our army, came to Caesar and, feeling unable to do anything for their country, began to proffer petitions on their own behalf. Thereupon induced afraid of being left in the lurch, sent envoys to Caesar to say that he had only refrained from leaving his followers and presenting himself before him in order to keep the tribe loyal, lest, if all the men of rank left them, the masses, in their ignorance, might fall away. Accordingly, the people were under his control, and, if Caesar would allow him, he would wait upon him in his camp and entrust his own interests and those of his community to his protection. Four. Caesar was aware of his motive for saying this, and of the circumstances that deterred him from prosecuting his design. Still, in order to avoid having to waste the summer in the country of the Treveri after having made all his preparations for a campaign in Britain, he told Induchomerus to present himself with two hundred hostages. When they were brought, amongst them being a son of Indusomerus and all his relations, whom Caesar had summoned expressly, he spoke to him kindly and urged him to remain staunch. Nevertheless, he summoned the leading men of the Treveri, and called upon them individually to support Syngeterix. He felt that Syngeterix deserved this service at his hands, and at the same time he thought it most important that a man of whose remarkable goodwill towards himself he had clear evidence should, as far as possible, command the respect of his own countrymen. Indusomeras bitterly resented this action as diminishing his own credit, and, Whereas he had already been ill-disposed towards us, this grievance kindled his indignation into a fiercer flame. 5. After settling these affairs, Caesar moved with the legions to the Ischian harbour. There he learned that sixty ships, which had been built in the country of the Meldi, had been driven back by stress of weather, and, failing to keep their course, had returned to the point from which they had started. The rest he found completely fitted out and ready for sea. Some four thousand cavalry from the whole of Gaul and the leading men from all the tribes assembled at the same place. A few of them, whose fidelity he was assured, he had determined to leave in Gaul, taking the rest with him as hostages, as he was afraid that, during his absence, there would be disturbances in the country. 6. Amongst the other hostages was the Iduan, Dumnerix, of whom we have already spoken, Caesar had determined to keep this man particularly under his eye, because he knew him to be an ardent revolutionary, fond of power, a man of masterful character, and possessing great influence with the Gauls. Moreover, Domnoryx had stated in the Edeuan council that Caesar was going to confer upon him the sovereignty over the tribe, and the Edeuai were seriously offended at this remark and yet did not venture to send envoys to caesar to protest or to depreciate his intention caesar had learned this from natives who were his friends damnerix at first earnestly prayed for leave to remain in gaul partly on the ground that he was not accustomed to being on board ship and dreaded the sea partly as he alleged because he was debarred by religious obligations finding that his request was steadily refused and that there was no hope of getting caesar's consent he began to importune the Gallic magnates, taking them aside one by one and urging them to remain on the continent. He wrought upon their fears. He told them that there was some strong reason for robbing Gaul of all her men of rank. Caesar shrank from putting them to death under the eyes of their countrymen, but his purpose was to take them all over to Britain and there murder them. He made them promise to stay and called upon them to swear that they would unite in carrying out the policy which they saw to be for the interest of Gaul. these intrigues were reported to caesar by numerous informants seven having learned the facts he determined inasmuch as it was his policy to treat the adouai with special distinction that it was his duty to coerce and intimidate Dumnorix by every means in his power and as his frenzy was evidently passing all bounds to see that he did no injury to himself personally or to the public interest. For about twenty-five days he was kept waiting in the port, because the northwest wind, which commonly blows throughout a great part of the year on these coasts, made it impossible to sail. Accordingly, he did his best to keep Dumnorix steady, but at the same time to acquaint himself with all his plans. At length, taking advantage of favourable weather, he ordered the infantry and cavalry to embark while everybody's attention was distracted dumnerix accompanied by the eduon cavalry left the camp without caesar's knowledge and started for his own country on receiving the news caesar broke off his departure postponed all his arrangements and sending a strong detachment of cavalry to pursue dumnerix ordered him to be brought back and in case he resisted and refused to submit to be put to death for he thought that a man who disregarded his authority when he was present would not behave rationally in his absence. When called upon to return he resisted, defended himself with vigor, and adjured his retainers to be true to him, crying loudly and repeatedly that he was a free man and belonged to a free people. The cavalry, in obedience to orders, surrounded the fellow and put him to death. But the Eduan cavalry all returned to Caesar. 8. Having disposed of this business, Caesar, leaving Labienus on the continent with three legions and two thousand cavalry to protect the ports, provide for a supply of corn, ascertain what was passing in Gaul, and act as the circumstances of the moment might dictate, set sail towards the sunset with five legions and the same number of cavalry as he had left behind. A light southwesterly breeze wafted him on his way, but about midnight the wind dropped, he failed to keep his course, and, drifting far away with the tide, he descried Britain at daybreak lying behind on the port quarter. Then, following the turn of the tide, he rowed hard to gain the part of the island where, as he had learned in the preceding summer, it was best to land. Footnote. Between Deal Castle and Sandwich, a little north of where he landed in 55 B.C. End footnote the energy shown by the soldiers on this occasion was most praiseworthy rowing hard without a break they kept up in their heavily laden transports with the ships of war the ships all reached britain about midday but no enemy was visible large numbers as caesar found out afterwards from prisoners had assembled on the spot but alarmed by the great number of ships more than eight hundred of which conning those of the preceding year, and the private vessels which individuals had built for their own convenience, were visible at once. They had quitted the shore and withdrawn to the higher ground. 9. Caesar disembarked the army and chose a suitable spot for a camp. Footnote. Perhaps on the gently rising ground near Worth. End footnote. Having ascertained from prisoners where the enemy's forces were posted, he left ten cohorts and three hundred cavalry near the sea to protect the ships, and marched against the enemy about the third watch. He felt little anxiety for the ships, as he was leaving them at anchor on a nice open shore. The ships and the detachment which protected them were placed under the command of Quintus Atreus. After a night march of about twelve miles, Caesar described the enemy's force. Advancing with their cavalry and chariots from higher ground towards a river, they attempted to check our men and force on an action. Footnote The river was the great star, and Caesar crossed it near Canterbury, probably at Thannington. End footnote Beaten off by the cavalry, they fell back into the woods and occupied a well-fortified post of great natural strength, which they had apparently prepared for defence some time before with a view to intestine war, for all the entrances were blocked by felled trees laid close together. Footnote probably Bigbury camp, about a mile and a half west of Canterbury, traces of which still exist. End footnote. Fighting in scattered groups, they threw missiles from the woods, and tried to prevent our men from penetrating within the defenses. But the soldiers of the 7th Legion, locking their shields over their heads, and piling up lumber against the defenses, captured the position and drove them out of the woods at the cost of a few wounded. Caesar, however, forbade them to pursue the fugitives far partly because he had no knowledge of the ground partly because much of the day was spent and he wished to leave time for entrenching his camp ten on the following morning he sent a light force of infantry and cavalry in three columns to pursue the fugitives they had advanced a considerable distance the rear-guard being just in sight when some troopers from quintus Atreus came to caesar with the news that there had been a great storm on the preceding night and that almost all the ships had been damaged and gone ashore as the anchors and the cables did not hold and the seamen and their captains could not cope with the force of the storm the collisions between different vessels had therefore caused heavy loss eleven on receiving this information caesar recalled the legions and cavalry ordering them to defend themselves as they marched and went back himself to the ships he saw with his own eyes much the same as he had learned from the messengers and the dispatch which they brought about forty ships were lost but it seemed possible to repair the rest though at cost of considerable trouble accordingly he selected skilled workmen from the legions and ordered others to be sent for from the continent at the same time writing to tell labienus to build as many ships as possible with the legions under his command Although it involved great trouble and labor, he decided that the best plan would be to have all the ships hauled up and connected with the camp by one entrenchment. About ten days were spent in these operations, the troops not suspending work even in the night. As soon as the ships were hauled up and the camp strongly fortified, Caesar left the same force as before to protect them, and advanced to the point from which he had returned. By the time that he arrived, reinforcements of Britons had assembled on the spot from all sides. The chief command and the general direction of the campaign had been entrusted by common consent to Castavallanus, whose territories are separated from those of the maritime tribes by a river called the Thames, about eighty miles from the sea. He had therefore been incessantly at war with the other tribes. But, in their alarm at our arrival, the Britons had made him commander-in-chief. 12. The interior of Britain is inhabited by a people who, according to oral tradition, so the Britons themselves say are Aboriginal. The maritime districts by immigrants who crossed over from Belgium to plunder and attack the Aborigines, almost all of them being called after the tribes from whom the first comers were an offshoot. When the war was over, they remained in the country and settled down as tillers of the soil. The population is immense. Homesteads, closely resembling those of the Gauls, are met with at every turn, and cattle are very numerous. Gold coins are in use, or, instead of coins, iron bars of fixed weight. Tin is found in the country in the inland, and iron in the maritime districts, but the latter only in small quantities. Bronze is imported. Trees exist of all the varieties which occur in Gaul, except the beech and the fir. Hares, fowls, and geese they think it impious to taste, but they keep them for pastime or amusement. The climate is more equitable than in Gaul, the cold being less severe. 13. The island is triangular in shape, one side being opposite Gaul, one corner of this side, by Kent, the landing-place for almost all the ships from Gaul, has an easterly and the lower one a southerly aspect. The extent of this side is about 500 miles. The second trends westward towards Spain. Off the coast there is Ireland, which is considered only half as large as Britain, though the passage is equal in length to that between Britain and Gaul. Halfway across is an island called Man, and several smaller islands also are believed to be situated opposite this coast, in which, according to some writers, there is continuous night, about the winter solstice, for thirty days. Our inquiries could elicit no information on the subject, but by accurate measurements with a water clock we could see that the nights were shorter than on the continent. The length of this side, according to the estimate of the natives, is 700 miles. The third side has a northerly aspect, and no land lies opposite it. Its corner, however, looks, if anything, in the direction of Germany. The length of this side is estimated at 800 miles. Thus the whole island is two thousand miles in circumference. 14. By far the most civilized of all the natives are the inhabitants of Kent, a purely maritime district, whose culture does not differ much from that of the Gauls. The people of the interior do not, for the most part, cultivate grain, but live on milk and flesh-meat and clothe themselves with skins. All the Britons, without exception, stain themselves with woad which produces a bluish tint. This gives them a wild look in battle. They wear their hair long, and shave the whole of their body except the head and the upper lip. Groups of ten or twelve men have wives in common, brothers generally sharing with each other, and fathers with their sons. The offspring of these unions are counted as the children of the man to whose home the mother, as a virgin, was originally taken. End of chapter 14